That's why, the, I mean, to prove the point, I was, I was booked to talk about the very issues I'm just describing. You're not even asking about them because they're not interesting facts to you. That's not true. I have plenty of questions on immigration. You've attempted to filibuster by talking about your flight. No, I'm not. I, no, I want to ask a you a question because uh, don't, you, no, don't you, be you, condescending, you, Jake. Jake, Stephen, Jake, the president and the White House. The reason why I want to talk about the president and the White House. The reason why I want to talk about the president's experiences, what I've seen with him traveling to meet dozens of foreign leaders, with his incredible work. Okay, you're not answering major, the questions. No, I understand. You have 24 hours a day of anti-Trump material. You're, being, you're not going to give three minutes for the American people I to get hear it. the real experience you, you, of Donald Trump. There's one viewer that you care about right now, and you're being obsequious. No, you're being which, a fact no, to him in order to being, please him. Okay. No. And I think, you know, I've you know I, I think I've wasted enough of my you viewers' time. You know who Thank I you, care Stephen. about? As Republicans, hey, Jay, lawmakers call you know for Attorney General Jeff Sessions to resign. In a major reversal, Democrats are now coming to his defense. What changed? We'll ask the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee next. Life's not fair. This is the biggest underground river passage in the world. So big, a jumbo jet could fly through it. It's dear in Borneo. The sheer size of Beer Cave allows some animals to gather there in huge numbers. A staggering three million wrinkle-lipped bats live here. The bats roost high on the walls and ceilings where they're well protected from the outside elements and safe from predators. And while they're up here, the bats produce something very important. This 100-meter-high mound is made entirely of bat droppings, guano. Chef Gaffieri has been shut down. Guys, American Kitchen and Bar was open to the public for the last day on Saturday. A private dinner event was held on New Year's Eve. The restaurant you may recall opened back in 2012 and infam infamously received a no-star review from the New York Times. Gaffieri said in a statement that he was proud of the restaurant serving millions of patrons over five years and did not give a reason for its closure. Hello. 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 Go tell it on the mountain. It is 2018. And I, for one, 
just cannot shut the Fantastic Four up about it. Welcome back to another episode of the Humor and the Abject Podcast, you bagpipe lusting, restaurant closing screedlers. This is Stefan Lee, your faithful studio manager. Right out the gate. Bruppetingwa. Bruppetingwa. Which celebrities will die this year? Probably Neil Young. Ha ha. Ha ha ha. But seriously, can we just take a moment and dip our toes into the ranch dressing of a wide open 12 months? Anything could happen. I could chew off my own butt and become a member of Run the Jewels. We've got an excellent first episode of the new year for you this week, friends. Perhaps your new year's resolution should be to finally do what you've been meaning to do all along. That's right. Support humor and the abject on drip. You'll get access to lots of bonus content that the nasty little general public will never encounter. Now, that's what I call content. Anyways, we're sponsored this week by How Insufferable Scotland Is, How Unreal Stephen Miller's Voice and Hairline Are, Caves Filled With The Poop Of Brian Drycore's Favorite Little Animal Friend, Restaurants Going Out Of Business Because East Coast Liberal Elites Are Chaunceys, and the fact that it is 100% brick outside right now. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 36 of the Human the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I am recording this on American Airlines Flight 1170 from Dallas-Fort Worth to New York's LaGuardia. So, you know, that's kind of uh, why it sounds like it does. Um, First of all, welcome to 2018. Uh, Hope all of you listening had a great holiday season, regardless of which holidays you celebrate. I myself had quite the little journey that I'm on my way home from. Uh, Went out to Denver as you may have heard a couple episodes ago, to visit my sisters. My folks were out there, too. We went to a little town called Salida. Uh, I believe I released an episode while I was there, too. You heard a little bit of my family. Uh, From Salida, I took a 10-hour Greyhound bus that uh, went the wrong direction from Salida to Denver and then back across to Grand Junction, Colorado, Uh, such as the Greyhound Pathway. I was picked up in Grand Junction by Claire in a car. She drove me to Moab. We stayed there with some of her family. Went to Arches National Park, which was outstanding. You may have seen some of my snaps on Instagram. Uh, If you're not following me, that's at social malpractice on Instagram. After Moab, we took a rental car and drove to Monument Valley, which was gorgeous, uh, stunning. Stayed at this great hotel on the Navajo Reservation that's called The View. If you're ever in the area, support them. Uh, Great, great hotel. Wonderful hospitality. Wonderful views all around. After Monument Valley, we went to Canyon de Chez, which is sort of like the the indie version of the Grand Canyon. Uh, Very cool. After... Canyon de Chez, we drove to uh, Zuni in New Mexico and had a great time in Zuni and got some tours and things like that from some of the local people there. 
Um, after Zuni, we went to Tucson, and I hung out in Tucson for several days until we got on a plane uh, today to be flying back, and that's uh, where I'm coming to you from, is that uh, aforementioned American Airlines Flight 1170. Now, this week on the podcast for you, first episode of 2018, I've got performance artist Alexandra Tatarski, who I saw this—I saw this piece of hers called Americana Psycho Babble several months back, and have been pretty much obsessed with her comedic performance art ever since. She is a trained clown, uh, and she tours around the United States, bringing these oblique performances to new audiences constantly and she had just gotten back from life on the road and swung by the kitchen to talk about the genesis of her work and how she manages to maintain composure during these outrageous performance pieces that she does on stage so without further ado here is my conversation with alexandra tatarski no i think my name has almost never been spelled do people think it's Tartarsky? People think it's Tartarsky. People okay. think it's Tartarsky. Tartarsky. I think I made a Tartarsky mistake once in the email. Um, but I'm so used to it, I've considered that maybe my stage name should just be subtly different from my given name. It should just be Tartarsky. Just a little bit? Yeah. I think you signed an email once with Tartar, though. That is so my that nickname. Be, so that became confusing for me. A lot of people call me Tartar, and my website is tartar.biz, and it is confusing. But I checked, I, I checked around with other family members, and people do this to them too. So. Oh really? <laughs> cool. Well, Alex, I was like, did I fuck myself with this nickname? People are going to be confused for the rest of my career. Uh, well, Alex Tatarski, welcome to Humor in the Abject. Oh great! Did I really, <laughs> really say it right. Yeah. How are you? How are you? Um. I'm like good, normal amount of good and um, disoriented, I mm-hmm. guess. What's mm-hmm. disorienting? Anything in particular or just the... Um, hmm, anything in particular? Well, in a way, um, nothing, but that's because I'm uh, just dove into working on a new piece, which is um, very explicitly about nothingness. And so it, it leads to basically a constant state of disorientation okay. because I'm... I'm working on it really hard, but working on it really hard means means doing nothing all day in a very intensive um, fashion. Okay, all right. <laughs> you seem you seem confused. I'm slightly confused. Um, well, I want to get to that in a little bit. And uh, first of all, I wanted to talk about the piece that I got to see somewhat recently, Americana Psychobabble, mm. uh, which you were doing many times throughout 2017. Oh, and I mm-hmm. should point out too, I didn't mention this before we started recording. Uh, this will come out um, in 2018, very well, early. So year. we'll be speaking as if this year that we're in right now is past tense. Um, <laughs> but so throughout 2017, you were doing Americana Psychobabble. And could you describe that work and some of the central themes? Oh, boy. Um, it emerged from uh, an experiment in spirit channeling where I was channeling the spirit of a photograph of um, a white woman's hand sort of clenched and painted in the American flag. Her fingernails were painted with the American flag. So (laughs) the whole show emerged out of um, curiosity about what these fingernails would say if they could speak. So for... Wait, what's a photograph from? (laughs) um, A... a, um, I, I went to clown school in Philadelphia, and um, I don't know where the photo came from, but we were uh, playing around with improvising around images. So um, Quinn Boreadell of Pig Iron um, 
sort of bequeathed this image to me and I essentially became possessed by the spirit of these fingernails for about two years, I would say, um, channeling their texture, their shininess and brittleness and the stars and stripes and the red, white and blue and how would those fingernails live in the body and mm-hmm. in the breath and in the gaze and then what would come out of this like demon fingernail creature. Um, and so that text, which was sort of this like demonic sub subconscious burbling brew of text um, opened up a whole plethora of themes around what constitutes Americanness and what's kind of the ugliness beneath the surface of a lot of Americana imagery. And And when were you in clown school? (laughs) Um, I was uh, in clown school for two whole years in Philadelphia. Really? Um, Is this a full-time, is this like a low residency program? This is is intensive all-day clown school. (laughs) Is it it linked to a particular circus? Or I'm asking, this is genuine curiosity. I really want to know what clown school is about. Um, clown school is about suffering and, um, and, uh, humiliation. Um, clown school, this particular clown school, I had been considering for a while going to study in Paris with this guy, Philippe Goyer, who's a famous asshole, basically. And he, the world, he's the world's best and most famous Buffon, which is a particular strain of, um, I guess on the spectrum of clown, let's say. Um, and I wanted to go to France and study with him before he kicked the bucket and I still do actually I feel like I have maybe a couple more months so I have to get over there fast but um but uh, then an opportunity arose to study at a very new school um started by Pig Iron which is a theater company based in Philly they had all studied with the master mime pedagogue Jacques Lecoq in Paris is that a real name Uh, Jacques Lecoq well I think maybe Lecoq I mean but I prefer Jacques Lecoq (laughs) and uh they had all studied with him and met in Paris like 30 years ago or something like Whoa. that. And then, um, so they started this little school in Philly and I thought like way better to go study clown for way less money and, and, and bring clown, like be in, re- be in community, be in response to an American yeah. environment. Whoa. Not be like a French mime in a bubble in Paris. And sure. Come back to New York. So the, the performance that you were doing, you were mentioning earlier, this kind of like burbling up of all of these, uh, syllables and things like that. What is... For somebody who hasn't had a chance to see it, how would you describe the the arc of the performance? Um, Who's the central character? I guess this piece, to me, does not possess characters. It's an exploration of states. Um, Of being or like Massachusetts? (laughs) Yeah, like California, Kentucky. Um, States of being. Um, So like the state... Uh, the the quality of the fingernails. So rather than being a particular person or a type or a character, what does it mean to just inhabit a sort of texture, if that makes sense? Okay. But I yeah. would say that the piece as a whole kind of has three parts that goes from this durational psychobabble associative text logic into like total exhaustion. Like how do we pass through feeling so much that we get to a numbness? We go where words break apart into into like pure sound babble, just like chewing on one's numbness. Mm-hmm. And through that, is it is it possible to experience to to exercise this kind of demonic burbling and, and then heal in some way or no, which is a question I have that I hope is kind of left unanswered. Um, and then passing through into <laughs> um, the angel of death killing everyone and uh, and attempting to wash off the blood 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, I remember that part. Um, um, Did it change a lot throughout the year as you were working on it, or was it a pretty fixed piece in terms of the beats that you hit? I mean, I think the the babbling part. You, I'd asked you before, and I think you said that it was. Um, that's pretty much off the cuff. Um, yeah, it totally depends. I mean, um, it's very clown in the sense that it's really responsive to what's happening in the room. So, and anything that happens is a, as we say in clownland, a gift. You know, like <laughs> any anyone who has a strong reaction, any any fuck up that happens in the space enters the piece. But um, over time I did develop it into a pretty set structure although it's always changing in response to the particular setting that it's in whether that's a theater or a gallery or a house or the street or a festival or a mm. mm-hmm. when you were putting it together I was reading that uh, in the development of it you were in some other context in addition to going to clown school um, you were doing comedy for tourists in Cancun oh god yeah. and also rocking the vote in rural Pennsylvania um, <laughs> Were those jobs or research or how how did those play into this? Those were jobs, um, both of which I felt really lucky to have to get paid to do these strange things. Um, um, yeah, I, I work with an amazing school in Mexico City called the School um, of Authentic Journalism. And they, um, Al Giordano, who's like the madman maestro of this school, invited me to a sort of um, journalist retreat in Cancun where they were all going to be sitting around in, in, in a Mexican restaurant in Cancun um, without any air conditioning, getting drunk, being hungover and jet lagged, live tweeting the Republican National Convention. <laughs> um, and I was supposed to be the post-show entertainment for these hungover, jet lagged, depressed journalists mm-hmm. live tweeting the circus that was the Republican National Convention, if you recall. So these are actual journalists, not artists interested in journalism no yeah these are actual real live journalists plus live journalists. whoever live yeah live journalists they, i mean they not dead um and whoever was stumbling in as a gringo tourist in cancun which ranged across the political spectrum obviously peeking in to watch the republican national convention so this was a volatile situation to be developing this work in um and a lot of my experience was like the the difficulty or the rich failure of trying to find humor, what humor can do when and now this rhetoric already seems really tired and and cliche in a way, but but when you're watching something that is already so exaggerated and mm-hmm. absurd, yeah, you like wonder what you can offer to yeah, a, yeah, a yeah. room of depressed people who can't believe what they're seeing. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. What about the rural Pennsylvania where you? We talking with the economically disenfranchised? Were we out there with the um, the opioid addicted masses? Hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, a wide range of folks out in Pennsylvania. Um, shakers. I wish I had encountered more shakers. Quakers. The Quakers and shakers are my main inspirations, <laughs> as you might be able to tell. So, not enough Quakers and shakers, mostly. But you're doing like voter registration. Um, specifically at this point in the campaign i was going out to people who were supposedly on the fence about voting okay but registered democrats trying to encourage them trying to make them vow to me that they would actually go to the polls Mm -hmm. and vote but what we have discovered is that many of them did not well so um (laughs) wait so what organization were you um 
It was an environmental organization that takes on many different campaigns, like save the bees, save the trees, cool. save the country. So, mm -hmm. um, so it was a lot of actually going around to like make mansions in the middle of nowhere, oh, um, old age sort of communities, um, and then definitely people just living in little houses in the woods, which since I've lived in cities my whole life was, I was scared of the dark. <laughs> um, when you're doing this piece or or your other pieces, what does it feel like while you're doing it live? Like what's going on in your head? I, th I think a lot about in performance, the kind of uh, where your brain is maybe a second ahead of your body. Like you're kind of having to think of what is coming next, even though you're doing something, but I, that's not the case for everybody. I'm just curious, like, are you blacked out while you're doing this? Are you hypercognizant? Are you, I know you said you're feeding off of different things that the audience is doing, but is there a word for the feeling or what is going through your head while you're doing this? Um, yeah, I guess to use the words that, that you just threw out, if it's going well, I'm in a performance blackout. If it's going poorly, I'm hyper aware of what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> so if I can't remember a show, I'm like, wow, that was a great show. Too bad I never have anyone fucking film this shit. And then if 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 uh, I remember every little moment where somebody glanced away or I realized I didn't nail a beat or take advantage of something the way I could have, then I know it was really a, a trash show because there's this other state that's not a sort of conscious zone where I think I access a lot more juice. Yeah. What do, I mean, what happens if that's like seven minutes into a 60-minute piece? If you hit like a bad beat or something, you just roll with it or? it. This is a fascinating question. Um, I'm asking because everybody deals with it differently. And I've seen yeah. some people who um, very clearly don't handle it well or turn it into a <laughs> turn it into an antagonizing thing with uh -huh, the audience and uh -huh. sort of say well if this is fucked seven minutes in it's not going to get any better so they just create a grinding halt and create an awkward situation for everybody for an hour wow i'm just curious i i don't feel like you would do that but the performance that i saw people loved it so there wasn't it didn't seem like there was a moment where maybe anybody was or where you were worried Mm, thank you. That's good to hear. Um, <laughs> I'm basically always worried. No, um, uh, I think it's really important to just remain curious about what is going on in the room. And that curiosity can kind of get you out of a really terrible situation, like breathing and returning to the room. I think as soon as you start to flee your body, you're doomed. And that can become this kind of like mean and aggressive thing to audience. Like, why aren't you with me? Why aren't you with me? But in fact, you've left, you know? Oh. Um, <laughs> um, it's a two-lane highway. Oh, yeah, baby. Going in, going out. See ya. Um, and I certainly have done that. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> demonic laughter. You see, whose body was that? That's <laughs> my body. I was laughing and I slapped my thigh and I hit the like play button on my phone. That's I apologize. Yeah. No, I really enjoy I wish that happened more. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but you do some crowd work too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I feel like you can kind of, you're doing a nice gauge thing. Do you, Is that like a power move on your part to, to get into the audience or... A power move. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps. It, it certainly is really fun. I mean, I spent all summer in Edinburgh and there were some real hellscape shows there where I, I experienced this thing that you're talking about seven minutes in. You're just like, I'm doomed. I'm truly doomed. And it's especially difficult with really intense material that that engages racist and sexist 
rhetoric, yeah. really violent rhetoric. So when people are laughing, it feels really beautiful to travel through this together. But when nobody's laughing, I'm just on stage screaming kike at a room full Ooh, of people yeah. in Scotland, you know? Um, are you ever like, I'm Jewish? <laughs> yes, Excuse I me. often say, like, if it's really not working, I say, like, L'chaim, for happy Hanukkah, you know? Um, I don't usually say, hi, I'm Jewish. <laughs> Maybe I'd say shalom. <laughs> um, well, yeah. clearly I Holy I Hashem, yeah. this isn't going very well. <laughs> um, but I did one time in my life, I stopped a show because it was going so badly that it actually felt violent. Like it felt mm. like there was a dark, dark spirit in the room. And really something very beautiful and amazing happened. Um, I just explained to the people, I'm sorry, I think I've been possessed by a, a demon and I don't feel comfortable giving this demon space because I was kind of scared of having a, a Kramer moment or, you oh, know, yeah. like you, when you're improvising, it's really unnerving what could come up. And the people in the room didn't leave. And I said, like, I think it's, guys, I think it's really over. There's a demon in me and, I, and I'm nervous about it. And they assumed it was part of the show and they stayed. And so we all stayed in the silence together. And then eventually they just start talking. And this German man in the back goes, yeah, like this was a very dark show. I, I don't know why you think it would be funny because because it really wasn't funny i mean and then like can you imagine to be at a comedy festival and to have everyone listening to a guy in the back go like this just is not funny material this is really not funny at like not one moment of humor this is really serious stuff so did you guys have like a you had like a sit down and everybody like, had a, like chatted it out yeah like what you were describing like a therapy session Whoa. on acid <laughs> for sure very psychedelic <laughs> therapy i've never experienced like a scottish guy got up and said like I don't really do a Scottish accent, but yeah, like here in Scotland, Alex. you know, <laughs> Alex, come on, you should have been able to make it funny though. I mean, like in Scotland, we've got a lot of dark shit and we make it funny and you just didn't do that. Like, look, you know, and then he sang a song, like a long folkloric Scottish song about boiling your wife and feeding the soup to the children. And it was really funny. Good God. It was kind of like shoving it in my face. Like, look, like I took that story about boiling my wife and feeding it to the children and they're laughing and you didn't make us laugh. <laughs> like, Well, you didn't write that story. <laughs> You didn't make that up. Yeah, You're yeah. You're just repeating somebody else's material, sir. Right. I'm down here trying to do OC, original A-R-T, content. A-R-T, baby. <laughs> oh, man. Well, what is it? Okay, let's zoom past that. Um, after after a really solid performance, what what is the, what are you experiencing afterwards? Are you in a total just sort of like hangover from the performance, or are you ecstatic? Are you just kind of like on a different plane? Yeah, unfortunately, I think that the really good shows are the reason why I've chosen this ridiculous life because it's such a high that uh, it, it nothing else compares and it's really addictive. And it's like giving birth, you know, or what I hear about giving birth, where it's excruciatingly <laughs> painful. You're thinking, like, why did I let this person impregnate me? Never again, never again. And you push out the baby and you look at it and, and, and you just feel love. And then you like get pregnant again and have another kid mm, mm-hmm. is what I hear. What I hear. <laughs> that sounds very, that really resonates with me. <laughs> Experience. It's yeah. You forget all the pain and suffering. Um, quick aside, you were in an episode or more than one episode of Gigi. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. Yes. I just had Ruby on a little bit ago. I was watching, <laughs> Ruby. I, was, I was watching some of it again and I, my and I favorite, saw you. My favorite. Who were you playing in it? You were like an, at like an apothecary or something. Um, yes, I'm Kiki Roosevelt, actually, a rather crucial character, okay. um, not just the apothecary chick. Um, yes, I'm a debutante, celebritante uh, who's known the girls for a while. And um, yeah, 
who they they really look up to and, and admire. And in fact, um, well, I won't I won't reveal all of the twists and turns of the backstory, but I'm a crucial element. Okay, yeah. cool. Well, I was jumping around and watching different episodes, and mm-hmm. I and I saw one that you were in. Mm-hmm. Um, so a while back, I had asked you in in email to, regardless of how silly you thought it was, to give mm-hmm. me sort of like a laundry list of the different things oh, that you no. do. Oh, and I did it. Well, oh, I, I had asked you to, so that's that's on me. But you said, you know, primarily you're a writer and performer. And I also like that you said, uh, aka a song and dance man, or mm-hmm. the sort of the classic, that version. But you mentioned a bunch of things that you do on the side. And uh, you also provided me links, which I thought was really cool, because all of them checked out. But... <laughs> You had like scholar. Well, I didn't lie at all. I'm (laughs) ashamed. I don't think so. You had like scholar, teacher, organizer, translator, collagist, and erotica educator, many of them in quotation marks as like a wink and a nod, but with links to places where, uh, you know, you had done those things, uh, which I thought was really cool. And I'm wondering if any of these are compartmentalized for you or if they all kind of are a little bit more fluid in that you know, everything is part of this larger kind of practice or you're like, no, I'm a writer and performer. And then to, you know, fill my time that I don't have, uh, in reality, I do all these other things. Yeah. This is the question that also obsesses me. So I'm glad that you asked. Um, everything, uh, is part of the same project for me in my head of examining meaning and madness and how identities are formed and fall apart in language and the performance of self, basically, um, at its core. But it sort of disturbs me the way in which we're expected to perform these different selves in such different ways in different contexts. And so society asks us to compartmentalize in a way. And um, this, yeah, so this is actually something that I've been like thinking about how, how to what extent can you like play at the boundaries between these different areas? Mm-hmm. Um, like to what extent can you be a clown in uh, a political setting, be thinking politically as a clown, um, be thinking of yourself as a translator while you're dancing or as a singer while you're teaching or whatever the case may be. So I don't think I've cracked it, but it's something I'm interested in figuring out um, the way in which these could all sort of be the same thing. Mm-hmm. Do Is writing and performing and maybe dancing are those sort of, if we're looking at it, like the food pyramid, would those be <laughs> at the top or... Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I guess that would be a terrible analogy because the food pyramid <laughs> is the stuff you're supposed to do more is at the bottom, right? And then the top is the, you right, don't the do bottom, that as much. The iceberg getting bigger under the water. Oh, destroying yes. The, the ship. Yes, Hemingway. Um, right? Only 90, you only see 10% of the writing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hence the Titanic. Um, he, which he wrote, of course, the film Titanic right, by Ernest Hemingway. One right. of the standout. That's the only Hemingway I've, that's all I've read. Well, that's the only one that you need to read. Right. I'm glad we're on the same page. Thank God. Um, I guess I just think of myself as a performer fundamentally, but like said in that way, like a performer. Yeah. yeah. And that's the frame for everything. And I'm really curious about how everything is a is a performance. And that's actually why I have a bit of um, of a podcast PTSD pod podcast trauma stress oh, no. disorder because what it's happened. I had like a mental breakdown on a podcast recently because of this question, essentially. So here we go, Sean. Oh, God. Um, like th- this question of what is the, the at the top or the bottom of the, the pyramid or the iceberg, yeah, which yeah. one is the, the real self, is I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. And like to, to think about it is to, is to in- just enter this abyss of not having 
any idea. Oh, sure. Yeah. I wasn't meaning to give you an existential crisis. I just Wait, meant really? like, what do you like to do the most? Mm, like, I like to like dance. Yeah. yeah. Dance. <laughs> I like to dance and eat. <laughs> dance, eat, read. Um, well, maybe here's a, here's a follow-up that's uh, more outside of yourself, but do you have any thoughts on why there's kind of a increasing overlap between people who maybe would have in the past just said, I'm a performance artist, or people who would say, I'm a comedian, or I'm a this or that, and all of these people, particularly millennials, who seem to be very happy waiting around in the kind of muck that's in between them and being able to be in a bunch of different spaces. Like I could see some of your performances very easily being in the context of, like you said, like a comedy festival or a comedy club, but they could also be in a performance festival. They could happen uh, in lots of different places. And I'm sure the context would change the color of how people received them, but um, you're in good company, right? There are a lot of people who are doing this at this point. And I, I, I don't know if you have given any thought to why that might be. Mm -hmm. Well, I definitely think it's reflective of a larger moment right now where people are very excited about troubling the, the borders and the boundaries of things. And it's really exciting to be playing in that space where the audience isn't quite sure how they're supposed to be feeling. It's like a very rich discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, and... And yeah, just just really walking the line of tragedy and comedy, obviously, you know, like on a on a good night, maybe it's comedy on a bad night, it's tragedy, but maybe on a good night, it's tragedy on a bad night, it's comedy, depending on the audience gets to decide basically, mm -hmm. whether it's funny or deeply sad. And often it's both. And I think that's a really rich place to be and reflects like in general excitement about about having a more wobbly edges to things like yeah, yeah. That, that the language that we have is insufficient for describing identity across the board, which includes like identity as a performer. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, are you drawn to mainstream comedy in any capacity or do you want something, uh, even just as like a consumer of, of media, do you enjoy watching mainstream comedy type of stuff or do you look for stuff that's a little more complicated or weird? Um, I suppose everything in a way, although that's a unhelpful answer, perhaps. But I mean, I grew up, you know, like watching stand up, stand up on, you know, comedy specials and thought that those people were doing the best job of talking about political issues, essentially, of talking about the war on drugs, for instance, like the best analysis of that came from Chris Rock, you know. Um, but I would say mostly my influences are actually like street performers and like New York, like not even performers per se, but just um, people on the street. Characters. <laughs> Characters. People having various states of being, you know? I mean, yeah. um, and that's, that's what continues to be the most exciting place to sort of experience material in a way is just to like wander around and hear, listen to people talking to themselves, if that makes sense. I mean, I, I really think that's actually the, the bigger influence in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and why in your own work is character so important? Are, are you Alex ever when you're performing? Or are you, uh, I mean, I know that that gets back to this question. Itself, <laughs> but I mean, do you, do you present yourself as like, and now Alex will do this thing, even if it's an exaggerated version? Or are you always sort of, even if let's say this character doesn't have a name or a backstory, but you're inhabiting, like you said, like a texture or something else. But what's so important about that as opposed to coming up and doing, I don't know, a monologue or something? Mm -hmm. um, I guess I just think it's more 
honest in a way. I don't, I'm not sure that anybody is ever not a, a character. So it's sort of the choice of which character. And I'd rather put a more interesting or complicated one on stage than, um, <laughs> than the me in quotations of other contexts. So if I know I'm going to have a room full of people sitting and watching, I'm excited to explore a, a per, like one self maybe, but one of many. I guess my point is that I'm not sure that there would be an unmediated Alex, like an Alex mm -hmm. without quotation marks. I don't actually know what that would look like. It might look like me just sitting and staring at a wall or something, mm -hmm. which... Um, which which people have explored in performance art, as we know, but um, but that's not what I want to explore. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's been done. We can do that. right over it. Um, Went to the moment. Are there uh, <laughs> are there characters that you've explored or done that um, you're just like, well, that did not. Nope, never doing that again. Um, no. Good. No, I guess I just learn something every time. There have been excruciatingly uncomfortable performances, but I think I learned something, and I think the other people being uh, forced to sit through that learned something. <laughs> I like to think that you brought an educational element to them. Right. Everything I do is, is about education, <laughs> fundamentally. Um, are there artists or uh, even comedians right now outside of... I know you said that you're looking a lot just around you as you're kind of traversing, but... Whose work, if you had to put it in conversation with in terms of like contemporary art, because, you know, your stuff exists pretty left of center in terms of when people say like, oh, yes, contemporary art. But also it doesn't fit neatly, I, I, I don't think, into like the performing arts. But I'm curious if there are artists, artists who you're interested in or that kind of you might be drawing from. Hmm. Um, I mean, a lot of the people I'm thinking about are... Uh, contemporary dancers whose work sometimes exists in art museums. Okay. And this is a really interesting space to me. Trajal Harrell, Miguel Gutierrez. Oh, yeah, I know um, Miguel. He was a major figure for me when I was younger, realizing, like, oh, you can do whatever you want, which is really obvious, but I didn't actually know that. Like, you can do whatever you want. This is your space. You can enjoy mm -hmm. the space. Yeah, yeah. Taking the space. Um and to draw also, um, who just had a big retrospective at the Barbican in London, um, where the wall, the walls of the museum are making you um, look look at the work differently. But it's fun, like making a mess within that space. So that attraction to a certain kind of messiness, like delight in messiness, is really inspiring to me. Yeah, I saw at the Time-Based Arts Festival in Portland, Oregon, I want to say like 2007 or maybe 2008, I saw, uh, it was Miguel Gutierrez and the Powerful People, I mm -hmm. think it was one of his groups. And I will admit that I wasn't, I mean, I didn't know anything about dance. I didn't know if I liked it or disliked it. I just kind of hadn't really experienced it before. And I saw that and I was pretty like floored. And mm -hmm. I just thought this is, these people are like enjoying, I mean, a lot of it looked very difficult too. And some of it was challenging, but I thought these people are enjoying what they're doing and mm -hmm. it felt really energizing and invigorating. And I thought that that was, uh, really fantastic because just my, like, you know, my like little pea brain didn't think that people enjoyed dance. I had this very, <laughs> maybe sort of anachronistic understanding of like what dance was, which was this, like, you know, it's a choreographer's medium that only people who are like psychotically interested in being 
controlled by fascists will go into and sort of like dance exactly as they're told and all these things like that. And that just mm-hmm. seemed so much more, like you said, doing whatever you want or taking up space. And that, that seemed really energizing and I think had a big influence on a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he seems really huge in that way for kind of giving permission. Yeah. Totally f- fighting the fascistic impulse of certain histories of dance, definitely. Very, very actively and, and yeah, with like glitter, yeah. Glitter. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break and I'll be right back with more Alex Tatarski. A phenomenon was happening that you didn't see. A phenomenon was happening that the rest of the political class didn't see. All these so-called political geniuses in Washington, whether it be at the big lobbying firms or... The only person who's called himself a genius in the last week was the president. The, the, which because happens to be a true statement. Okay. A self-made billionaire who revolutionized reality TV and who has the course of our politics. happy that you said that. But you know, Jake, you can be... No, no. You can my, be condescending. I'm and, not being no, condescending. I'm trying no, to get you to the point be, that Steve Bannon... You can be condescending. That was a snide remark. You're sure he's watching he's happy. Let me tell you something. Why is Your that network... You can, look, you can be as condescending as you want. It's part of your M.O. But listen, the, you can have 24 sets. I, I have no idea why you're attacking have, me. Well, I'll explain my, my, to you. My I'll, point I'll is, tell you why I'm Steve attacking Man, Steve you. Steve Bannon. Jake, you can have a 24 the president's travel ban. What he helped he help pull I'm out. so glad you brought that up. Because me, that's one of the fake Steven, news Steven, items in the book. Steven. I would happen to know better than you would, Jake about how the travel ban was written. Let me, Steve, Bannon, Steve Bannon didn't push the travel ban. If you would let me, Steve if, you would let me right, if you let me ask no, this question. No, because you have president. You 24 hours of negative anti-Trump, hysterical coverage on this network that led in recent weeks to some spectacularly think, embarrassing false reporting. I think the from viewers network. right now can ascertain no, this the viewers hysterical. are entitled my, to have my three months of the truth. Why don't you just give me three minutes to tell you the truth of Donald Trump that I know and then all of our campaign Because it's my show and I don't want to do that. So this is my question. But this isn't isn't a courtroom and I have a right to settle that. Settle that. Calm down. Jake, I have a question for you about issues. Stephen Bannon, who the president says uh, had nothing to do with his presidency, he was part of the president's travel ban. He was part of pulling out of the Paris climate deal. He was part of withdrawing from the TPP. He's part of border security. He's t- part of being tough on immigration. Okay, so you want to go through the of, No, I don't want to go through, but my point is, is it okay. really the position of the Trump White House that Steve Bannon had nothing to do with the presidency? Or can you acknowledge the reality that he was a key player? I think that what the point is, is that his role has been greatly exaggerated, whereas the president hasn't gotten the due that he deserves for the movement that he put together to tap into the kinds of people whose life concerns don't get a lot of attention on CNN. I'd like to talk to you about controlling a space in this kind of directorial mode of performance and why discomfort? Because you've mentioned this a couple times, like creating a space that's a little bit uncomfortable or where tragedy comes in and why, what you get out of creating that tension, because it could be really easy to just go up and do one-to-one LOLs, right? (laughs) I mean, that's hard. That's actually very hard. But I mean... But in terms of like, once you have that polished, it's a, it's an easier thing to deliver, mm-hmm. not necessarily an easier thing to write, but once you get there, it's very easy to deliver. So what, what do you revel in about making people feel a little bit like what the fuck is going on? 
Um, I think the liveness of it, like I'm interested in live performance as a medium that is different from things that we consume on screens, which we do most of the time all day. And the element of danger is really important to me, like to remind everyone this is really happening to me and to you in this room right now. For some reason, we all chose to be here and we really don't know what's going to happen. And to make that happen, I also have to not know what's going to happen. And that creates a tension because when that's really what's going on, it's it's palpable that the piece could go in many different places. It, it's not set in some way. Um, and that I think is like the richest place to be in because it's a place of like total discovery, like stepping into this abyss. But it also means that a lot of um, dark things can come up because they're, they're there. They're not being like the polish hasn't been, hasn't been slicked over and shined yeah. entirely. So yeah, the, there's a rawness. Yeah. I feel like, um, yeah, as an audience member, that's part of the appeal is that the risk is there and that something could go wrong. And that can be kind of like, that's exciting. Even though you don't want something terrible to happen, but knowing that it could, there's something valuable in that, right? Mm-hmm. And it's really tricky because as soon as the audience is too worried about you, <laughs> th- then you have to reassure them somehow while still maintaining this. It's like a very exciting game to be playing. Like, yeah, you, you should be you should be worried. You should be worried about me. I mean, like we live in a in, in the world that we live in. Like, uh, shouldn't we all be a little bit worried? Yeah. And yet, like, we're not actually here to get together and feel bad and upset. We're here to, like, experience what we maybe push away most of the time and be able to, like, go through that together to mm-hmm. the other side. So that is the the ideal. When like it's an working. exorcism? Like an exorcism. Like a minor exorcism. <laughs> like a major exorcism. A major exorcism with the audience. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. I think about, I went to, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the podcast before, Ooh. but I went to a, I went to a Cirque du Soleil mm-hmm. uh, one time and um, one of the performers fell um, during, like, there were people on their backs um who are doing this kind of like it's very it's very difficult for me to describe this but you know like in a cartoon when a seal is on its back and it's kicking a beach ball up in the air over and over again it's spinning Uh you know that image Mm -hmm. that but a human being doing that but kicking a person who's doing somersaults up above them like over and over again yeah um i mean it was an incredible feat of like i cannot believe that human beings can do this first of all but (laughs) and it was amazing and everything in that is so polished and like perfect and all these things and one of them fell and it was like this tear in the space-time continuum Mm -hmm. it was like Mm -hmm. one of the most catastrophic things uh, you know with it clearly i've seen much more catastrophic but one of the most intense things because it was like just this like rip of all of this veneer that was going on and all of a sudden it became real and raw and you saw that performer as a person and you thought about the backstage and you thought about someone getting yelled at and all the drama and all these weird things in it despite the fact that in the moment it was really really uncomfortable it was in terms of uh my own history with viewing live performance, it was a really formative thing where I was like, oh, wow, this is like incredible. Like shit can go wrong. And you forget about that. And it's not that I'm ever rooting for something to go wrong, but the potential for it, I feel like creates a a different type of generosity between performer and audience that, that certainly isn't there when you're watching something on a screen, right? 
Absolutely. And I'm, it's interesting that you bring up Cirque du Soleil because I think the circus is sort of the classic example of knowing that and manipulating that. So, How so? Um, for instance, it's very common, and I don't know, obviously, the circumstances of what you saw with the... Circus stances. So the circus stances. I can't say I'm familiar with the exact circus stances, but, um, but typically a classic routine always involves a fuck up, a really scary one. So the classic, Okay. I don't want to be giving away all the secrets of the industry, but I should the, know I'm um, a carny. Yeah. What the hell, man? Are you just, this is all a front pretending you didn't realize that was a setup? <laughs> letting down the family. Um, yeah. Tightrope acts um often have a fall built in juggling acts often have a drop built in um i fell in love with a juggler on the street in mexico city one day watching him through the window of a coffee shop because he was juggling at the street lamp and he had a really tight like 20 second or less 15 second bit that was just long enough to do the whole bit while the cars were stopped collect the money and then the cars would leave and built into this was juggle spectacularly juggle spectacularly drop a pin freak out pick the pins up, juggle spectacularly, juggle spectacularly, look around, like exactly sharing in this generosity that he's allowed, he's created a circus stance where the audience can feel generous and feel yeah, yeah, their yeah. own compassion come well, and alive. Then, and then the underdog wins and everybody kind of gets And then like they a, give him way more money. Oh, yeah. It's smart. Yeah. So I don't know about the circus stance that you're... I think this was, I don't know if Cirque du Soleil, I mean, there were some other things that were very much like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then it was like, oh, right. but then it comes back in. But this, I this think this like, was pretty much like a oops. Yeah. It was, it seemed very that's, like, uh-oh. I mean, that's terrible. I hope nobody got paralyzed, but it's also those are no, the they, most No, they got like, up and exciting. like ran off. It was like pretty, yeah. pretty nuts. But. That's the alive that I'm talking about. That's like really alive because of its proximity to death. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> do you do stunts ever? Hell yeah, I do stunts. Okay. No, I'm really bad at stunts. (laughs) I was stunting right there. Um, No, I'm like really bad at all the technical things. I think because I'm too lazy. You know, it's like really, you really, it's like it's craft to to do stunts. Are there people who are studying, um, what are the different sort of approaches in when people are pursuing in the clown school? Like, is everyone kind of doing the same track or are some people there who are like i'm going to be um because you you mentioned earlier these different spots on the spectrum of being a clown and one was the buffon Mm. which is that french for buffoon (laughs) um yeah i guess buffoon is probably english for (laughs) um (laughs) yeah the the buffon is so exciting do you know the myth of the buffon i don't know that i do lay it on me yes Okay, so so the Buffons are, are, are based on, like, in, in medieval times, right, there's all the outcasts who live outside of, like, the, the beautiful city, um, and they're all uh, deformed in various ways and don't have access to resources, and they're out living in the swamps, and they're watching the king and all the fancy people, all the rich people basically go about their idiotic rich people lives, and they spend all year in the swamps making fun of them and imitating them, but because they're all crippled and impoverished and uh, sickly, and angry with very good reason they uh they imitate the rich people with this like fierce um critique embedded in their very being Mm -hmm. and then one day a year during the carnival they're invited in to perform for the king and they've basically been rehearsing all year how to both imitate and mock the elite but they have to do it 
while being so funny and so cute and so lovable that they don't get killed for critiquing the king, for making fun of the king to mm-hmm. his face. So the ideal Buffon performance is you perform for the king and he loves you. He gives you a ton of money. You're very happy. You go back to the swamp. Then he goes home. He thinks about what you actually said to his face and he's so humiliated and ashamed of himself that he kills himself. <laughs> Wonderful. So, like, if I could come up with the perfect Buffon, for instance, for our current tyrant, Mm -hmm. like, he would applaud and love me and promote me and then go home and actually, for the first time, reflect on the monster that that he is and kill himself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, that's the, that's one track. (laughs) Wow. What are some of the others? I'm, I'm... (laughs) I'm genuinely interested in the different types of um, the different types of clowning because I think that uh, you know we have a pretty simplistic understanding in the United States, myself included, of like oh a clown is this or a clown is that. And even though I feel like in my heart of hearts, I know that there's a nuanced spectrum in different types of things. But what other types of clowning exists? Oh, my favorite topic. Okay, so <laughs> the clown that you're thinking of, maybe the red nosed sure. clown, the very classic clown um is sort of the smallest mask is what we call it so mask performance is obviously this ancient uh ritual um and when the mask gets shrunk down to just be a red bump on the nose that's the smallest possible mask but it's still drawing from mask principles of performance um one thing at a time um showing the audience how you feel about everything being really responsive to what's going on and all of the delight coming out of watching you watch um so the the nose doesn't actually have to be there then like the even smaller mask is no mask that's visible but still performing with these mask-like principles um and so uh, sitcoms are that basically like they're coming out of ancient mask ritual where we're performing these archetypes and we're showing the audience with these takes I saw that. Did you see that? I saw you see that. Now we're sharing in the delight together of whatever just happened. I'm acknowledging that we're both in the space together. Mm -hmm. There's no lie of a fourth wall. So basically, I think anything that acknowledges that we're all here, this is all really happening, is a kind of clown performance. Um, Like the moments in stand-up that are clown to me are when someone drop something and that's acknowledged even just with like a grunt a look and a grunt and usually that gets the biggest laugh Mm -hmm. (laughs) those moments that are totally off the cuff and really minute and responded to with physicality and sounds sure or when somebody tells the joke that they know either takes an extra second or they know that the joke was a step too far but then they sort of like do like the one quarter turn and look (laughs) over their shoulder a little bit at the audience like i know I know. Yeah. I know. I'm a very bad person, and then everybody laughs really yeah. hard. But there's that that acknowledgement to like you're watching me, now I'm watching you. Kind mm-hmm. of thing. And the acknowledgement of the failure of a joke is often the most the best part of a set, yeah. which is also pure clown. Like I'm trying so hard. I'm trying so hard. I want to do my best. Like I'm I'm just a clown. Like love me, love me, love me. <laughs> Wait, you don't love me? Oh fuck! Like you really. You guys, you really don't love me. And then everyone laughs, and then they love you, and then you, and then you love me, and then we can go on. <laughs> um, what other? Where does the mask go from there? From the nose. Um, do you mean if the mask gets bigger? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I mean, I I really love commedia, like very classical mask shit. Um, the commedia dell'arte. 
um, of Italy and the Balinese mask work is all playing with hierarchy and types, like the rich guy and the poor guy and how they negotiate power in their lives, basically. So it's super... Uh, it feels super relevant, and I'm always trying to figure out how that could live in the context of the U.S. because we're, it's so unfamiliar that to literally see masks is a very alienating experience for people. Uh-huh. But in fact, the idea of the mask is that it should just be revealing more. It shouldn't feel unintelligible, which I think it often does to a U.S. audience. But um, I love Dottore. What's that? Oh, God. I didn't think I was going to come on here and just geek out about Commedia dell'arte. I want, I want now to know. You know. Um, Dottore is the Commedia archetype who's like the pompous doctor. Could be okay. philosopher, medical doctor, whatever, expert, but doesn't really know anything. Okay. And it provides this amazing improvisational opportunity where anything can be done, anything can be asked. And Dottore just can talk and talk and talk in this associative logic that like spins something out of absolutely nothing Mm. and just like reveling in the idiocy of pretending really pretending with your like every fiber of your being that you know everything and in fact you know nothing that's a great archetype i've met lots of those (laughs) so many tutorials in new york (laughs) yeah wow yeah people yeah Professors come up to me with like tears in their eyes after some Dottori stuff being like, oh, I just saw myself. <laughs> when you're when you're doing it when or I've, when someone when else is When I've done Dottori, I've had really good like come to Jesus moments with um, professors. I think I've, uh, I think when I was younger, I tried to do that unknowingly and just backed myself in the corner so many times <laughs> that I stopped pretending like I knew what stuff was. If uh-huh. I didn't, um, it was a good learning lesson, I think. Mm-hmm, I stopped mm-hmm. being like, yes, I've read that. And of course I know who you're talking about. <laughs> I'm just like, no, I don't know who that is. Right. But that's so delightful when when you back yourself. That's what's so great about clown is those moments are really are the best moments because then to get out of it is the really fun part for everybody. Maybe not if you're actually teaching in class. <laughs> is, there, is there a danger that, um, is there a danger in enacting these things in your day-to-day life when you're not on the stage <laughs> as you're sort of navigating with people? Like, do you find... That sometimes you might be practicing, but maybe it's not the best situation to be practicing one of these things in. Oh my God, Sean, absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's, it's terrible. It's a serious problem. I mean, because as I mentioned, I'm interested in not keeping things so segmented, but uh-huh. we have these different roles and realms and because people freak out if you transgress what they're expecting, right? So in a very basic way, I, I made a challenge to myself a couple years ago. Okay, when people ask me what my work is about, which is a you know, can be a difficult question for artists. Um, I would just actually answer what I really felt it was about, which often was non-linguistic. Like it was just like a bunch of grunts and screams and strange noises and like hitting myself a lot. And I've, I really challenged myself, you know, why should I not be honest in these moments? Why should I have to translate into like social English? So I was at this event and a couple of important people, people who could have helped me in my career, <laughs> said in front of a big group, like, so, you know, Alex, what what are you working on? What's your what's your work about? And I said, don't be an excuse my French pussy. I said that to myself. That part was in my head. Okay. Don't be a pussy. And just really tell them what it's about. And I just began like convulsing and hitting myself and went into this kind of like manic fervor, which I would often do in a show, but it's within a show. But this was just in a fancy room. And people I've never seen anything like it. They they simply blocked it out. They they just 
they just walked away they just <laughs> stared nobody acknowledged it was as if it didn't happen and they and the and the little circle of possible career help just sort of drifted away did you stick around the event afterwards hell yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it's so fascinating what 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 we we can't we don't want to see that we don't want to see that outside of a perform yeah. outside of a performative frame like the frame allows us to experience that and i'm curious with what happens when we're not sure if there's a frame there containing it or not. Yeah. Do you think that in a lot of the stuff that you do that's out in the world, the the notion of play, is there something kind of rooted in that that's um, a type of politics in, in doing things that, because you just said that people expect that we kind of interact in certain ways when we get together or at a party, you're supposed to be like this, you start convulsing or something and people basically just shut down and walk away. Um, is performing, is being playful, is doing all these things, are they like maybe anti-capitalist positions just by being sort of ridiculous, nonsensical, absurdist? Absolutely. I'm so glad you said something. <laughs> um, that's what first attracted me to mime, to the mime arts, is this, what I what I think to be a, de- a delightfully anti-capitalist position. So, uh-huh. so not... Um, not self-serious, but just at its most basic level, nothing in the hands, nothing in the pockets. If you don't have anything except your 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 flesh sack, what can you make? What can mm. you create? Is it possible to to make worlds that we don't have language for? Because something that I see as being a frustration politically is that we don't have the language. We don't know what an alternative structure would look like anymore. And sometimes I see that as being... Um, responsible for like the despair and anxiety among our peers is there was a there was a moment in the last millennium where there were there was perhaps the sense of there being a viable alternative and um having grown up like basically at the moment of the collapse of communism whatever you think of that particular attempt at an alternative system um i think has created this like sense of real cynicism around the possibility of imagining alternative structures and so certainly all of this is just a, a way of saying that that mimes are the answer <laughs> that this kind of play i think is a way of working within the brain to figure out ways of being with each other that have a different vocabulary that maybe use words that we, we don't have yet that mm-hmm. we have to figure out together yeah yeah i think about that quite a bit in terms of any time that something is absurd or ridiculous or doesn't have uh, a discernible reason for why it's being done. I, I usually have to kind of zoom out and think, oh, I only am thinking that because I'm wondering what the practical use of something is. And the only reason that I think something is practical or not is whether or not it can generate some capital or whether it can move something forward as opposed to like, are these two people growing as individuals emotionally and having some sort of connection or imaginative play? And uh, yeah, I think that's something that's always drawn me to comedy and performance and things like that is that there's a bit of the, um, and I'm probably using this word in a different way, but the buffoonery that's inherent in it is almost just the position of being like, what I'm doing isn't necessarily easily monetizable. Like I'm not putting a, I'm not attaching a fixture to a thing that goes through a machine that then becomes this object that can be used for like a task. It's a little bit more thinky and weird. Mm-hmm. 
Totally. And I, I, this really interests me as sort of a, a problem in a way. Is it possible to resist these um, forces that really ask you to monetize every aspect of yourself and turn yourself into a consumable brand, perhaps especially as an artist or a performer in some way, or a performer whose, whose material is the body? Um, so to go back to your earlier question, I, one way of like writing the line between comedy and art is perhaps one way to complicate that. But I also think it's really a question that we haven't like figured out yet as a... Um, as a bunch of humans, like what would that really look like to carve out a space that, that isn't for consumption? Yeah. Are you optimistic that that is a possible future? I have good days and bad days. Yeah. yeah I think that makes sense. No, that's fair. But I think there's a, um, there seems to be a, uh, maybe a little bit of a generational push to insist that people do think of, um, alternative models instead of just the kind of, uh, it, it seems pretty obvious that trying to find a middle point in the road um, where we can be practical and get things done and, you know, push some legislation through and do this and that is clearly not a, a route that's um, proved to be very productive. Mm -hmm. It seems like it might just have to be a scrap it and start again. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do think there's a, a dangerous hypocrisy perhaps in a lot of um, work that claims to be critiquing structures of oppression um, and still wants approval from elite institutions. And this is a difficult tension that I think can lead to a certain hypocrisy because, in fact, you have to... It should be a good sign to be rejected by elite institutions if, uh -huh. if you're really challenging um, their underpinnings. At the same time, I guess the question is, is there a way to use the role of the trickster to enter the institution and do something transgressive within that space or, or no, like yeah, just yeah. being condoned by that space. Um, From a critique of institutions to an institution of critique, right? <laughs> Isn't that what Andrew Fraser was writing about? I think? But yeah, no, I think that's a fair question is to try to think about uh, access or a platform or these other things like that. Can you use the, you know, can you seize the means of production and then do something different or, or is, uh, capitalism such a large superstructure or institution? So kind of all powerful that it's basically like, Nope, they're going to subsume you and turn you into a commodity. So it's, yeah. it's a difficult, it's a difficult line to walk, but I think it's good that it's on people's minds. Nonetheless. Mm -hmm. I mean, one person who's really inspiring to me is, uh, this fellow Pedro in Philadelphia, who's a sculptor, um, and he asked the city if he could use this big piece of abandoned land as his sculpture studio, and there's no fences on it, and anyone can come in anytime, and he built an oven, and he planted food, and he feeds himself, and he feeds whoever else is around and wants food, um, and he made a vow that he was going to live on $12,000 a year, and he was going to work really hard a couple months of the year to make $12,000, and then not work anymore for money, and mm -hmm. just... Um, work on his on his sculpture which is both physical and social sculpture and his commitment to that to me seems truly radical to to figure out a life where the values are not based on how much money you're making which i think is just continues to be the way that we're measuring someone's success and influence even if they're doing transgressive work in some way yeah um well so what's coming up for you i know you've got uh on the 9th, you're doing the Jennifer Vanilla Show. 
Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. Uh, January 9th. And then you're doing something with Talk Hole? Yeah, something in February with Talk Hole. Um, friends of the pod. Like <laughs> friends those boys. of the pod. Yeah, 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 yeah very friendly on. boys. <laughs> They've been on, yeah. Um, they're great. Um, and then Eye on the Prize, end of April, April 24th, I'm forcing myself to um, premiere a new part two of this um show about nothingness that i've been working on now for for many years wait so you have oh so what you're working on right now is the part two that will Um, be in april yes so um so part one the show you may have heard of it is called seinfeld Mm -hmm. and s-i-g-n space f-e-l-t like seinfeld got it yes um and uh just been in that zone thinking about the abyss so continue to do that and hope to find something by april (laughs) Or find nothing. <laughs> God damn it. Now you took that one. And that's even less material than I had when I got here. Sean. And you're going to London too, right? And I'm going to London wow, soon. Oh, cool. Which should be good. Yeah, to work on this um, Shenzai lyric project that I do with my best friend around bootleg t-shirt text. Cool. Right on. Well, Alex, thank you so much for coming by and doing an episode. The, the first my of pleasure. 2018. Wow, I think. it's really an honor. Kicking off the... Yeah, new year. <laughs> new year, new show. Uh, thank show you so much. Show everybody. <laughs> cool. We'll see you all next week. Thanks. Thanks.